Mama Mystery. I am your host, Kelly. And I am a co-host, Austin. Okay. I don't know why you're imitating me like that. It's quite rude. Yep. We're off to a really good start, guys. We've been bickering for like the last 15 minutes. It's been rocky, folks. Hashtag married. Anyway, let's just dive in. We have a couple new Patreons to shout out. You ready? Hell yes. All right. Um, Colby Harvey. Hell yes. You already named her last time. Did I? Yep. I thought I might have. Yep. Oh, well, she gets it twice. Hell yes. The Patreon's so nice, she got a shout out twice. I really appreciate that, Colby. Stephanie Lopez. Hell yes. And Kim Martin. Hell yes. All right, so today we are talking about a crazy story. I know I probably say that about every story, but man, this one, there's going to be a point, and I will give you a warning, okay, that if you're eating, you might want to stop eating. Okay, so there's your warning. Okay, there's your warning number one. Stop eating. All right, so today we are talking about the disappearance of Dylan Redwine from Colorado, and this was in 2012. Okay. Okay, I know you like to get those facts right up front, so let me just dish it out. Then I won't interrupt you. We'll see. So, Dylan Nicholas Redwine was born on February 6th of 1991 to his parents, Elaine and Mark. His brother, Corey, was about seven years older than Dylan, but despite this age gap, they were very close. And growing up, Corey was a lot like a a father figure to Dylan. So, Corey and Dylan grew up in Bayfield, Colorado. And growing up, Dylan was very rambunctious. Um, He was a gifted athlete and a social butterfly, often communicating with his friends either through his video games or through frequent texting. He was very empathetic, kind, funny. He was like just your typical preteen kid, right? So, preteen kids are a lot of things you didn't name, but we'll give him credit, you know? (laughs) You just made it sound like every preteen is just a dream come true to be around. (laughs) 90% of them were dicks. I was. Anyways, great kid. Okay, so actually, it's funny that you say that because when I was reviewing a lot of the text message conversations that he had with his friends, Mm -hmm. there was a very, a big dissonance between the way he talked to his mom. And the way he talked to his buddies. You don't say. <laughs> his, so buddies, me, his buddies know him as a professional dick drawer, and his family <laughs> thinks he's a great kid. A story of every kid that was a preteen. Every, every preteen boy. Oh, and preteen girls are just precious. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not even get started on girls. Good <laughs> but Lord. it's funny that you point that out, because Austin, you are 100% correct. Well, I'm, I'm not trying to... You, like, to... this preteen, and he's so nice and gracious and kind and loving and But he and really cute. was a good kid. I mean... I mean, his mom did many interviews talking about how, how yeah. good of a kid he really Let's was. Let's just not forget he... I'm sure he was a good kid. Let's just not forget what a preteen is. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Point taken. <laughs> remember when, many, like, four seconds many, ago you said you weren't going to interrupt me? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Remember? Uh, what would this show be without me? <laughs> I don't the know. The kid was young, Short. dumb, and full comb. Keep going. Oh, my God. That's horrible. It's a bad, it's a bad reference, bad joke, bad all around. Austin. Oh my God. Too far? <laughs> Way too far. Delete it. I don't know. Okay. Anyway, let's get Are back we on delete track. That part probably. Let's get back on track. Okay, that was just a joke. I mean, good lord. I'm sure he's a nice kid. 
just so anyway, for some time, their dad, Mark, was actually a stay-at-home dad, which facilitated a close bond between Mark and his boys. But in 2007, after 18 years of marriage, Mark and Elaine divorced, leaving Elaine with full custody of both boys, and she left um, Mark the house. So after the split... Mark became pretty distant, and Elaine eventually moved on, remarried a man named Michael Hall, and they settled down in Colorado Springs, which was about five or six hours away from Bayfield, if you're driving. So the boys would visit their dad every so often, but it was a little complicated as he was a long-haul trucker, had a really limited schedule because he wasn't always home. So this physical distance eventually became paired with emotional distance as he would often badmouth the boy's mom, like we see a lot in split homes. And um, apparently there was an instance in 2010 when Dylan actually witnessed firsthand just how violent his dad could get towards his mom. So these little, these little events that kept happening just over time, kept driving more and more wedges in their relationship. And we'll get to the, the final straw in just a minute. <clears throat> so in 2012, despite resistance from Dylan, the courts mandated that Mark be allowed visitation. And Dylan was required to go to his dad's for the Thanksgiving holiday that year. And Dylan really did not want to go. He voiced his concerns about his grandmother, who was sick with cancer, blatantly told his mom he wanted to stay with her and that he really did not want to see his dad. He was just very adamant, like, I don't want to go. So Elaine asked her lawyer what she could do about this. And this lawyer, who no longer works as a lawyer now, possibly because of what happened, but um, she, I think she works as like a, a manager at a spa. I could be totally wrong, but she's like not even in law anymore. Anyway, this lawyer informed her that if she did not send Dylan to his dad's house, she would be in contempt of court. So Elaine, against her better judgment, sent him on a plane to see his dad on November 18th of 2012. And she thought, you know, as much as she didn't want to because Dylan didn't want to go, she figured he's safe. He's with his dad. So Dylan landed in a city called Durango, which is about 30 minutes from where Mark was living at the time. And when Elaine texted Dylan to make sure he got there. Okay. He responded with yes. And a sad face. According to the text message receipts found in the discovery, which I read all of them, Dylan was texting his best friend, Ryan, the night he arrived in Bayfield. Ryan also lived in Bayfield, so they had been friends for a long time. And uh, Dylan was hoping to see him after not seeing him for a while. So he asked this friend, Ryan, if he could spend the night that night. Literally, like the first night he's there, he's like, hey, Ryan, can I come over and spend the night? I mean, he just does not want to be at his dad's, clearly. Mm -hmm. So he asked his friend if he could spend the night, and they made plans to get together that evening. But after making these plans, Dylan told him, like, out of the blue, hey, I can't come tonight. We'll hang tomorrow. And his friend, Ryan, was like, okay, why? Is it your dad? And he said, yes, um, his dad wasn't going to let him come over, but he didn't know why. So That night, that same night, Dylan asked Ryan if he could just come over around 6.30 in the morning. And according to Ryan, this was not unusual for them to get up super early to hang out. 6.30, 
a.m. Super early. Really like, interesting. That to me is not typical of a preteen. Not. No. <laughs> I feel like preteens typically stay up to like four or five or six and then sleep. Yeah. yeah. But um, anyway, this was apparently normal for them though. So Ryan told him, sure, I'm going to be at my grandma's. So just come there. And Dylan said, quote, you better let me in. I'll call your ass all day if you don't, end quote. And Ryan said, okay. Dylan's last text to Ryan that night at 10.07 p.m. said, will your grandma care or be up? To which Ryan responded, just come around to where the sliding door is, knock and I'll wake up. Call me when you get here too. Dylan never responded to that text. The next morning at 6.46 a.m., okay, we're now in November 19th. It's 6.46, Ryan texts Dylan and says, where are you? And Dylan doesn't respond. Ryan texted again at 10.08 saying, come to Nando's, which was one of their friends, a different friend. And again, no response. His mom, Elaine, also texted that night, the night of the 18th, so the night prior, asking, how are you, son? Doing okay? With a question mark. Dylan never responded to that either. Holy crap. So according to Mark... After he picked up Dylan from the airport, they made two stops, one at McDonald's and one at Walmart to grab a few things. And according to the surveillance footage at both of those places, so at Walmart, they were never really seen together. They were often seen in like different aisles. And I don't know if it's because Dylan was purposefully trying to avoid his dad or if he really was just interested in something else. But But they were there. They were at Walmart, and they were grabbing a couple things. One of those things was a movie that he said he watched later in the evening with Dylan. Um, And then they went to McDonald's, and apparently some people think that while they were at McDonald's, Dylan was acting very, like, standoffish towards Mark. You could just tell he didn't want to be there. Mm -hmm. So... Mark says they get home later that evening. They throw a Nerf football around for a little bit and then watch that movie. Mark said that he went to bed around 9.30 that night before Dylan went to sleep on the couch. And he said that next morning when he got up and got ready for the day, he tried to wake Dylan up, but the Dylan was too tired. So he stayed on the couch and Mark left to go run some errands, leaving Dylan at home. Seems out of character from the text that went to his friend. Yeah. I mean, he was very eager to go to his friends. So, and the fact that he was like, he was the one that said, I want to come at 630. You better wake up and let me in. Like. Yeah. <clears throat> so according to Mark's cell phone records, he attempted to text Dylan a total of four times that day. At 8.14, he texted Dylan saying, quote, hey, bud, out of the office, call me. One minute later at 8.15, Mark said, call me, please, which is like really impatient. I know he did try to call him. I can't, I don't remember the time frame of like when those calls were made, but it just seems weird that he would be like, hey, bud, out of the office, call me. And then a minute later, say, call me, please. Then again, at 1123, so this is a few hours later, he said, quote, Dill, I'm home and you're nowhere to be found. Come back so I can get you to Bayfield. Call me, okay? Then again, at 233 p.m., Dylan, you need to call me. Where are you? In the midst of all of that, he also tried calling Dylan a total of seven times. And according to Mark's pings that day, it showed that he did drive from his home to Durango and back. 
So the last attempted phone call that Mark made to Dylan was the next day, which would have been November 20th at 7.19 a.m. And after that, he never called or texted Dylan's phone again. So the day that Dylan went missing, Mark didn't even bother telling Elaine about it until after, well, it was about 4.30 that afternoon. He said he texted her, okay? He didn't even bother calling her. He texted her and said, Elaine, I'm wondering if you've heard from Dylan. I've been trying to reach him all afternoon. She responded, quote, it's really worrying when I'm seven hours away and get a message like this from you. I haven't heard from Dylan today. Where did you leave him or last see him? End quote. He says, quote, I went to town for errands and he was fine. I am just concerned and thought you may have heard from him. End quote. She says, quote, it's weird that he would just up and leave. Does he have his phone? He responds, I agree, which is why I'm asking if you've heard from him. I assume he does and why I have sent him texts and calls. What I don't know is if he has his charger or if it's charged. So Real sh- quick. Hold go on. ahead. I just want to, like, mm-hmm. I guess, dialogue that I'm thinking. Yes. If, if you think through it like if you're in the dad shoes, mm-hmm. and I'm not, I may end up eating my words here later with whatever happens, mm-hmm. but just thinking about it, him not reaching out to her till like, 4 o'clock. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's that crazy. And the reason I say that is, what time did he leave for the office? It was around 7.30 okay, that morning. And what time did he call and say, hey, um, call me please, I'm out of the office? Um, Approximately. Exact let's time. Say it was like 8.30, let's 8.15. Say, yeah, getting to mid-morning. Okay, and then, and then if you look up what time he drove home, I'm just saying, like, I'm thinking through it, like, okay, you don't hear from your kid. I don't. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, I guess I need to say this out loud to think through it right. You don't sure. hear from your kid. You get halfway through the morning. You say, hey, call me. You still don't hear from them. You probably think they're sleeping. Maybe late morning you run home. They're not there. So then you're saying, holy shit, and you're making phone calls and you're looking for them. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, okay, we've been looking around for them for a couple hours here. Now it's 3, 4 o'clock, and then maybe get a hold of their mom. I mean, mm-hmm. do you think that, that since their divorce went out, do you think that's crazy? I mean, I don't know. I think it's crazy that if at this point you're concerned, you don't call, like that you're just texting. I mean, I don't know. Mm-hmm. As a mom, maybe I'm viewing this totally differently. No, I agree, though. I can see where you come from. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if the roles were switched and my kids had been missing all day, I'd be pissed to know that you hadn't For heard sure. from the kids since allegedly 7.30 that morning. Right. No, I agree with that. And I think that, I think also there's some, there's elements of a relationship that are kind of hard to predict what's going to happen. Because mm-hmm. if they just absolutely hated each other and didn't talk, then maybe a text isn't so weird. Maybe he was frantically looking. I don't know. You're looking at me like, listen, I know what happens later. And no. No, no, I'm just like, like, you know what happens later. So I'm thinking, yeah. you're probably like, you're going to eat your words. No, I mean, I think... This is a natural response. Like the way I always tell you stories, Austin, is the way they all happen chronologically. I don't try right. to give you clues beforehand. So you really don't know what's yeah. about to happen. Some people out there might already know about this case. So they already do. I'm just know, trying to but... think. Yeah, I don't know. I wonder what other people think about the timeline. So, sure. okay, go ahead. So, Anyway, she responds saying, I am terribly freaked out that he's roaming around in the dark. I think we should call the police. So mind you, this is within 15 minutes of getting that original text from Mark. So it's about 4.51 p.m. I'm getting weirder vibes from her response and messages than his. No, she's just concerned. This is a mother. Yeah, I know. But I mean, she's not calling and freaking out. And she's like, 
I don't know. I don't know. Just keep going. I'm weird. Okay. He says, quote, I didn't want to freak you out as I'm sure he's fine, but don't think I'm not concerned. I just left the Bayfield Marshal's office and headed back to the house, end quote. Okay. So that was around five-ish. She says, quote, did you get into a fight with him or something? How long has he been missing? And he said, quote, no, we talked and everything is fine. Several hours. So at this point, okay. I'm so thrown off both. Oh, it's all weird. At this point, it's 5 p.m., okay, and the last time he physically saw or spoke to Dylan was at 7.30 that morning, according to him. So to say several hours when it's actually been more like 10 hours at this point, you don't know where your son is and you haven't heard from him, that to me is concerning, especially with him saying several hours. Like, he's lying. He's lying to her. So Elaine, being a super concerned mother, says, well, it's not fine. He's missing, to which he does not respond. So she texts him again at 5.40, almost an hour after that last text, and says, quote, have you heard anything from Dylan? You said you called the marshal's office. They have no record of you calling them. See, as a mom, wouldn't you be there? Wouldn't you be on your way right now? She is. Okay. She is. Okay, good. Okay, that, that adds some context. Yes. No, she's on her way. She literally got these text messages while she was leaving work. She went straight home, packed up all her stuff, and went straight to Bayfield, okay. which was a, still a six-hour drive, right. seven-hour drive. Right. So Mark responds and says he doesn't even acknowledge the fact that she just caught him in a blatant lie. He did not go or speak to anyone at the marshal's office. So Mark says no, and I am extremely concerned at this point. I just left Tristan's house, and he has not seen him. Waiting for the sheriff to call back. I am doing all I can and will let you know the moment I hear from him. So she says, quote, he wouldn't just leave. He would have called me. I am so suspect of you right now. How could he just disappear? And he says, quote, it's just like you to blame me. Right now, the best thing for him is finding him. And she says, When was the last time you talked to him? And he responds, this morning. So finally he admits it actually was in the morning, the last time that he spoke with her. But like I said earlier, you know, he was known to kind of talk trash on his mom and like uh, on Elaine. And um, they had a very rocky relationship. So it doesn't surprise me that Elaine is very frustrated with Mark. It doesn't surprise me that Mark's response is like, it's just like you to blame me. I mean, I, I just can't stand it when people, parents can't set aside their feelings to just focus on the kids. But you know, this is, this is what happened. Okay. I'm just relaying the messages. So that night around five 30, Like I said, Elaine packed up, headed to Bayfield with her husband, Michael, and her son, Corey, in tow. And she went straight to the marshal's office where she learned that Mark did eventually file a missing persons report, but it wasn't until like six or seven that night after she called him out for lying about it. So meanwhile, a deputy had gone to Mark's house that night to ask about his missing son. And when Mark answered the door, he apparently looked very disheveled and rough. And this deputy noticed a lot of liquor bottles kind of scattered on the floor around the property. And he also noticed that all of the lights in his house were off, like as if he was either just woken up or getting ready for bed. And he found that really odd because he said during his testimony 
that usually when someone is missing, you turn every light in the house on to make it like a beacon to attract whoever is missing. You know, Mm -hmm. you want it, especially this guy who lives kind of in the middle of nowhere. If your kid is like out in the woods, you want to light something up so that he has something to come to, right? Kind of like a lighthouse. So he just thought it was odd. The deputy thought it was odd that all of his lights were off. So the deputy had a dog with him who he brought in hopes of picking up Dylan's scent so they could track his whereabouts. And when the deputy asked Mark for something that might have Dylan's scent on it, Mark told him he didn't have anything. So apparently all of Dylan's stuff that he packed with him to come to this like weekend trip was all gone. There was nothing left behind. What the so the deputy, confused by how he wouldn't have a single item of his son's with his scent on it, reassured him that it could literally be anything at all. Anything Dylan may have touched. A blanket he used. Yes, or like the pillow. pillow he slept on. Exactly, Austin. So when Mark said that Dylan was asleep on the couch that morning, the deputy asked for the pillow or the pillowcase that Dylan slept on. Mm-hmm. And Mark went and got it, gave it to him, but the dog could not pick up anything off of that pillowcase, suggesting that Dylan never actually slept on that couch at all. So the next morning, as soon as the sun rose, volunteers, officials, Dylan's mom, stepdad, and brother, they're all out searching for Dylan. And what was Mark doing? Well, according to the deputy there, who was setting up kind of like the hub for the search, Mark was just sitting on his porch, drinking coffee, and observing as everyone else worked on searching for Dylan. Freaking jerk. Mark suggested to police that maybe Dylan went fishing at a lake about nine miles away from his house. Oh, (laughs) maybe. You know what? Now that I think about it, about 15 (laughs) minutes down the road, my 12-year-old might have gone there. Yeah, on foot though. Yeah, because he said that he couldn't find his fishing pole and that Dylan loved to fish, so he just put two and two together. But Dylan's mom said, "Yeah, he liked to fish, but he never would have gone on his own because he didn't even know how to tie a lure yet. Like he he would have had to navigate his way nine miles away to this pond that he's lived six hours from." Yeah, so she knew immediately. I just want you to know, so far I hate Mark. Okay. Okay, so she knew immediately. You just wait, babe. It gets crazy. So she knew immediately that there was that that was just a bogus theory, right? And when that theory didn't gain any traction, Mark suggested that maybe Dylan just ran away. But again, it would make no sense that Dylan would just run away and not at least contact his mom or brother, two family members or he was friend. incredibly close with, or his friend. His best friend. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> and like, what is he running away from if he's not even going to contact his mom or brother right. or friends? So... The following week, on November 25th, the FBI was called in to assist in the case because the local police just had trouble reconciling some of Mark's story. And I want to I add this part that I didn't write, but I just remembered it. Um, so one of the deputies also testified during the trial, the eventual trial, that Mark, you know, he suggested maybe there was like a bear, like the the deputy suggested that maybe Dylan was attacked by a bear. And he said that the way Mark just lit up with excitement, like he became very animated, like, yes, oh my God, yes, I bet it was a bear. Just like totally grabbed onto that theory. But I heard a fact that said 
in the last like 10 years, there's been like four bear attacks. I mean, it, just the chances of it are very slim of that being a reality. And it was just very off-putting to him that this dad who has his son missing would get excited about the possibility that, yeah, it was probably a bear that did it. While he's sitting there sipping his coffee. Yeah. So anyway, the FBI gets involved and a special agent interviewing Mark on uh, more than one of one occasions. But during one of the first interviews, he asked Mark to give a detailed description of the events from the day he picked up Dylan until the last time he saw him. And Mark was very descriptive about the day he picked Dylan up and recalled them getting home, playing with the Nerf Nerf ball, like Nerf football, and maybe wrestling around a little bit. And Mark recalled how Wrestling he... Wrestling around? Yeah, just, you know, like, just roughhousing. That's what Mark said. Um, and he said he really enjoyed those moments because he felt like his son, him and his son, were bonding after, like, kind of growing apart for some time. But one of the odd things that he admits to the day... Is that the day Dylan went missing, after he got home from Durango and he couldn't find Dylan... He took a nap for about an hour. Like he says, he came home, Dylan wasn't there, he didn't know where Dylan was, so he like just took a quick nap, just a little power nap. Like, you know, meanwhile, uh, Elaine arrives in the middle of the night. She doesn't sleep a wink because her mind won't shut off because she knows her kid is missing. It just, it doesn't add up. So the special agent is probably getting a little suspicious of Mark's story. So he tries to offer a suggestion, like, did Dylan get hurt when you guys were playing? But Mark did not take the bait. He said, no, Dylan was fine. Nothing happened. So when the agent told Mark that some detectives were going to the, the house to search for any sign of injury to Dylan... Mark changed his story and he told them that Dylan had a gnarly cold sore on his lip that like oozed everywhere and was bleeding while he was there. So this special special agent said that he was just going to, he was like, that's great. That's easy to confirm. I'll talk to the flight attendant that was on the plane with Dylan. I'll talk to his mom. We'll just kind of confirm it. And then Mark's like, actually, you know what? I think he got hit in the mouth with the Nerf football when we were playing catch. That's what split his lip. Changed his story because obviously nobody would be able to corroborate that, but it might explain some blood that they might find at his house. Right. So sure enough, according to evidence, photos and luminol testing, Dylan's blood was found in multiple locations in Mark's living room and it was very diluted. So, um, this suggests that it was attempted to get cleaned up. Right. Um, Anyway, it was found on the couch, a corner of the coffee table, under the rug, under the coffee table, which is odd, that it wasn't on the rug, but it was under the rug. Even the couch and the coffee table is like a lot of blood or splattered or something. Right. It's, it's a lot of locations. Like, regardless of the quantity I of it, it's killer, too many places. I had a killer nosebleed two days ago. Mm-hmm. Freaking out of nowhere. You know this. Yes. And it freaking was pouring and at one point I pulled the little tissue out and it poured on the floor in front of me but I'm thinking <laughs> about that okay the reason I say this is because I'm thinking about if you had blood in mold like if I had blood on the floor and then over on the couch and then on the rug I mean it's just like it's a lot yeah it is a lot um it was also in the on the love seat and in front of the love seat so the the couches were shaped kind of like ours like in an L and it was found on both of those pieces of furniture so 
what happened? Like, what would be the motive? What would have happened? What would have caused Mark, who's very sus at this point, to kill his own son? Or, or you know, like, what would cause something to happen, right? Well, in 2011, Mark took Corey and Dylan to Michigan for Father's Day. And they were going to do, um, they were going to, like, tour some... Um, some museums, like go to baseball games and like some racetracks or something. They were just doing like boy stuff. And don't come for me if you're one of those that's like, I'm a girl and I like that stuff. Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> while, they, me. <laughs> while they were there in the hotel, Mark was taking a nap and Dylan got on Mark's computer and Dylan came across some really disturbing pictures on Mark's computer. He brought this to his brother Corey's attention. Corey, who was on the phone with his girlfriend at the time, um, he came in and he said that Dylan was like, Corey, Corey, come here. I got to show you this. And took him into the bathroom, locked the door, and showed Corey these pictures. And they were so disturbing that Corey actually took photos of these on his cell phone. And these pictures are the stuff of nightmares. Like, when I first heard about this story and these pictures, my mouth dropped. And I think I actually said out loud by myself in my car, what? So here's your warning. Uh, I don't even know if I want to hear it because I don't like this kind of crap. <laughs> oh, here's here your we warning. Go. If you're eating, just stop. Okay. So in the photos, which are easily accessible online, if you're curious, <laughs> I was curious. That was a mistake. Mark took these selfies, okay? He was dressed in a red lace bra. He had this like curly brown wig on and he's got lipstick on and he's trans dressing or whatever. He's also wearing a diaper, like an adult diaper. And the diaper is filled with feces and it's on his skin. It's a very clearly filled, soiled. Okay, it's soiled. And there are multiple pictures of him wearing the shit diaper And then there are pictures of him eating the feces out of the diaper. And it's smeared on his beard. It's smeared on his face. He has his tongue out as if he's like salivating over this crap diaper. And that's pretty much it. Those are, there's multiple pictures. Can you imagine seeing a picture of your dad? Your dad. It's your father. Your father. So, Corey insists that this was the moment Dylan lost all respect for his dad. This was the moment he lost any reason to ever look up to his dad. He was disgusted, humiliated, embarrassed. He was just like, this is absolutely awful. I can't even imagine. I I tried to imagine how that would make me feel. Oh my God, I would just want to crawl into a hole if I saw that my Mm -hmm. my own father was doing that. So... He didn't want anything to do with his dad anymore, understandably so. But Corey and Dylan promised to just keep this between the two of them. So Mark was unaware that Dylan or Corey ever saw those pictures, let alone that Corey had them on his phone. And they never told anyone, even their mom, Elaine, had no idea. If she would have known about this, there's no way she would have sent Dylan on Thanksgiving. It would not have happened. 
So then one weekend in August of 2012, just three months before Dylan went missing, Dylan and Mark were on a trip, just the two of them. And I guess they got into an argument about Corey and Elaine. And apparently Corey and Mark had a falling out because Mark was talking to Dylan about how Elaine and Corey were not good people or good influences. And Dylan said, eat shit. Literally, Austin. No way. No, no, no. Dylan didn't. Corey did. He said, eat shit? Corey sent him these pictures and said, you are what you eat. And said, you want to talk about like being a good influence? Like, look at this. Oh, man. And literally said, you are what you eat. Eat shit. Just like totally blasting him. And Mark was like, please don't show Dylan. He's been through enough. And so at this point, Mark knew that Corey knew about the pictures, mm-hmm. but, but Mark didn't know that Dylan had any idea about him. So anyway, Dylan texted Corey asking him to send him the pictures because Dylan was going to show Mark the pictures and basically say, you want to talk about bad influences? Like, let me show you who the bad influence really Dylan is. Dylan was going to do that? Dylan was going to. But Corey didn't end up sending him the pictures because he didn't want to make the situation worse. So Corey was much like a father figure to Dylan and he was very protective of him. So rather than exacerbate the issue, he really wanted to calm Dylan down, which is what he did. And Dylan just dropped it and didn't bring it up. But a few months later on that Thanksgiving weekend, it is believed that Dylan probably snapped and finally told Mark what he thought of him, bringing up the pictures saying, basically, I know about these pictures, you shit eater or whatever. And basically sending Mark into a rage, which ultimately ended with Mark taking Dylan's life. That is what we believe happened. So in April of 2013, Dylan was still missing and Corey, Elaine, and Mark all went on the Dr. Phil show where Corey and Elaine blatantly confronted Mark, accusing him of having something to do with Dylan's disappearance. Hold on. So the dude didn't freaking go to jail? No, because they they couldn't find Dylan. So nothing ever came about it. We don't know what happened to him. Not at this point. Not as of April 2013. Gosh, that pisses me off. It's got to piss everybody off. I'm not even a crime person. Like, does, as a crime junkie or crime lover, does this piss you off? Yes. Okay, good. But just wait. So, Dr. I still hate Mark, by the way, more than I did earlier. For sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So Dr. Phil offered for Mark to take a polygraph test, to which Mark said he would. But then when it came time to take the test, he changed his mind and conveniently refused to take it. So on June 26th of 2013, finally the partial remains... I'm sorry, I got to interrupt you again. Damn it, right at a super crucial part. I'm such an idiot. Listen, did Dr. Phil bring up him eating shit? I I don't know. I could not find for the life of me the full episode. I only saw clips. And it was basically of Corey and Elaine just drilling Mark and Mark just arguing with Elaine and like defending himself. And he never once talked about like his efforts in the search for Dylan. He just was like out to kind of um, clear his own name. And I should also add that in those initial interviews with detectives, um, they were trying to get him to like admit to having something to do with it. Cause obviously they knew like something is not right here. And at one point during the interview, right before it got shut down, Mark dropped his head and his shoulders kind of slumped forward. And according to this deputy's testimony, Mark said, I have to think about myself. Wow. And then the interview was over. 
So Okay, there's people who are pissed. I just interrupted you, so go ahead. Oh, it's okay. So on June 26th of 2013, okay, this is a few months after the uh, Dr. Phil interview, or I guess a couple months, the partial remains of Dylan were found off Middle Mountain Road, just a few miles from Mark's home. And when I say partial, I mean very limited. One partial femur bone was found. Part of his scapula or shoulder bone was found. And then the very tip of what appeared to be a finger or toe. A shredded t-shirt was also found nearby along with his Air Jordan tennis shoes. Fila, is it Fila socks? Is Fila the brand? Mm-hmm. Um, socks and an elastic band to Hanes underwear. And then also a pair of earphones. All Seemingly belonging to Dylan. Who found it? Uh, the searchers, part like part of the volunteers, I believe. And then in August, a cadaver dog named Molly was brought to Mark's home, and this dog hit on multiple areas of Mark's property. She hit on the main floor of his house, areas in the garage, the back seat of Mark's truck, and also on a bag of clothing that contained the clothes that Mark wore on the night Dylan went missing. So then on November 1st of 2015, Dan Foster and his wife were hiking when they spotted a human skull. The skull was tested and found to be belonging to Dylan Redwine. So, so but this skull was found really far away. So it was also found by the forensic pathologist that there were cut or knife marks found in or on the skull. So, Indicating, which what we already knew, was that um, Dylan was murdered. And this was really important testimony because the defense tried to argue that maybe Dylan was killed by bears. But there are so many things that refute that theory. First of all, bears would be in hibernation at that time of the year. Um, Bear attacks are quite rare. Um, Back of the car. What? Him, the dog hitting on him in the back yes, of the Yes, of course. But I'm just talking about the bear theory. Oh, okay. the, the marks found on Dylan's skull were V-shaped in nature. And marks made by teeth or claws or animals are typically U-shaped. So the fact that these were V-shaped marks indicated that they were done by a knife or something sharp. Mm-hmm. So Mark was charged with Dylan's murder... And the trial lasted about five weeks. However, he was actually charged with child abuse resulting in death and second-degree murder instead of first, which is apparently because they couldn't prove that this murder was premeditated rather that it happened in a fit of rage. He was found guilty on both counts, but he won't be sentenced until October 8th of this year. And according to the law in Colorado, he could be sentenced for as little as eight years or as much as 48 years. So Elaine went on to fight for the charge of tampering with a deceased body to be elevated from a misdemeanor to a felony and be punished as such. She couldn't believe, nor could I, that it was only a misdemeanor. So she was able to get the law changed in 2016, making it effective in the Chris Watts case, which happened in Frederick, Colorado. We've talked about it before. Um, That one happened in 2018. And then also in Letitia Stouch's case, which I covered in a YouTube video that eventually became episode six, if you want to go back and listen to it. That case occurred in Colorado Springs. So it's just... Interesting to see how these cases all kind of tie together. Mm-hmm. But, um, 
you know, what's interesting to me is just how differently cases can be prosecuted and how differently jurors can view cases. Because in this case, there was no real physical evidence that proved within the shadow of doubt, without a shadow of doubt, that Mark did this. I guess you could still argue that maybe he ran away or like uh, snuck out to maybe go to his friend's house earlier that night and got attacked or something. I don't know. But doesn't all the things that the dog hit on kind of refute that? Yes. However, you can't really use that as like irrefutable science because it's not a perfect science. So even if a dog hit on a spot, that doesn't tell you how the spot got there, how long it's been there. Sometimes dogs can hit on spots by mistake. If somebody like an EMT with some sort of like blood or something on them brought something in or a scent and transferred it, like that can happen. So, you know, although it is a very useful tool, dogs can be a very useful tool. It's not a perfect science. So I I did find that very interesting that, you know, it could be arguable, I guess, that maybe the dog could be wrong or is hitting on something. You know, it doesn't tell us that it's Dylan's blood. Right. You know, it just tells us that it's blood or, or, Dylan. or like a deceased body. Right. Yeah. So That's interesting. Dogs are incredible. That's crazy. They are. So that is the case of uh, Dylan Redwine. And it's still ongoing since he hasn't been sentenced. And I really hope and pray that he gets the max amount. And he still, um, he still argues that he's innocent. He tries to explain the pictures with a variety of stories. First, he said that he was just trying out a Halloween costume. Like, I mean, he never went to a Halloween party with this costume. So it's just bizarre. And like, why would you? What are you for Halloween? I'm a shit eater. (laughs) (laughs) All right, you weird. And a red bra. I don't don't get it. Um, Awkward. And then he also said that he took those pictures. Oh, he said that they could be Photoshopped. Maybe the guy just looked like him, but they were probably Photoshopped. Probably. And then in another, and they would put them on your own computer. Like, how dumb. Someone was out to get you. And planted them on your own computer. And then what about when you argued it with your son? So oh, he, he also argued that the photos were planted there by him as a way to give his kids a lesson to not break into their, like his computer. Like, this is my property. You shouldn't have been on it in the first place. Like, this is what you theory. get for breaking into my computer. Yeah, if you break into my computer, you'll find pics of me eating it. What does that mean? <laughs> what? I, I mean, you. like, I don't know, ground so him. Like, can you not? Months, <laughs> That's a months, weird punishment. Two months until we find out. What to him. Yes, that's correct. October 8th is the day he should be sentenced. So Keep we'll us see. Updated, Kelly. Oh, you know I will. Thank you all so much for your patience this week. I know this kind of came out later than normal, but I really appreciate it. We've just been busy and I was sick and just so many excuses, but you're here now. So you're welcome. Yeah, you're welcome. And thank you for listening. <laughs> Mama, <laughs> mystery out. Bye. Really good episode, babe. Thank you.